0: Hello, beautiful light filled souls. My name is Tricia Barker, and I'm excited to let you know that the second annual online near death experience summit is coming up this June 23rd with speakers Dr. Raymond Moody, Lisa Smart, Dr. Jeffrey Long, Dr. Eben Alexander, Karen Newell, Nancy Rines, Howard Storm, Paul Perry, David Ditchfield, Leslie Lupo, Kimberly Clark Sharp. Dr. Tony Chikoria, John Burke, Jose Hernandez, and me, your host. There are plenty of videos to check out ahead of time, but please look at this link, and we'd love to have you join. You can get your questions answered by the speakers at this event, and thank you, thank you so much for your support of my memoir, Angels in the OR, which launched last month. It is such a pleasure to connect with readers, and many people have enjoyed the Audible. So if you don't have an Audible subscription, you can have three, 30 days um, for free and get my book that way, but I would love to hear from you, and I hope you enjoyed this recording. You can check out these interviews on my YouTube channel. I'm converting many of them over to podcast, but enjoy. Hello, beautiful, light-filled souls. My name is Tricia Barker, and I'm here with Robin Lanson to talk about her upcoming book and her two near-death experiences and her trip back to Africa. And there's so much we could get into, but I will let spirit move us in the way that it needs to move us. But hi, Robin. How are you today? Good, good. So glad to talk with you again. Yes, and... I want to start with your book, if you don't mind. I heard some updates on Facebook that it's coming along and you're finishing those final drafts. How does it feel to get to the end of that project? Oh,
1: it's so great to be beyond first draft writing. And when I came back from Africa and had so much information and so much experience that happened there, um, I wrote another uh, almost 40,000 words to the book. Wow. So that's, it's taken me quite a bit to do that. And so then going through that process. So, so yeah, it's full length and it's at the stage where I sent it out to about 11 people and got feedback and, and what's so interesting and I'm so grateful. I really wanted to speak to a lot of different people. So my, I, my idea was to get feedback from a lot of people so that I um, finessed it in a way and made it so it worked for a lot of brain styles and a lot of reading styles. And just everybody catches something different. Everybody has a different part that they say, oh, this could be more clear or, you know, I didn't know what you're talking about there. And I purposely, because I'm so visionary and, you know, work in energy and that's just normal to me, I purposely chose a lot of people who are very sensory and very tactile and grounded so that they would tell me, like, I have no idea what you're talking about here (laughs) Interesting. When I'm a new death experience, so so that I'm so grateful for that feedback because then I can get it so that it speaks to them.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who, you know, from graduate school and writing programs and, and different areas who have told them about your book, and they're not into near-death experiences, but they're like, oh, my God, I'm going to read her book because, you know, it, it's Africa. You know, it's such a wild story, and it's just so, so they're interested for the memoir part of it more so than the near-death experience, so it's really I, that's what I was going for was those two crowds. And it's so great that you've got those two crowds. You know, you've got the people who are really not going to pick it up for near-death experiences and who are going to pick it up just for the story. And, you know, you have that ability to reach them. Are you kind of excited about that possibility?
1: Yeah. And and we probably should actually give a little summary of the story. But part of it too is I'm really excited in terms of, like you say, the spectrum of like there's the near-death part of it. And then there's the um, war reconciliation part and like reconciliation in Africa. And one night I was talking to my son in bed and he said, well, who would you really want to write your forward? And I said, well, Desmond Tutu. And mm. he said, well, call him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, isn't it great how kids think? It's easy. <laughs> so I actually
1: have a friend who has worked with them and so she just gave me this phone a little while
0: ago. So oh my God. <laughs> wow. Wow. Just yeah, when you're just in that creative mode and you're just putting it out there, you never know what uh, what might come about. So yes. Yeah. So for those of us who haven't who are listening and haven't heard your story, I do want to get into that. I'm I'm just personally excited about the book. So I wanted to ask a few things about that. But what would you tell beginning writers? This weekend, I talked with a woman who was thinking about writing her story and she's a single mom and she was like, do I do this? And she cares deeply about near-death experiencers and she's considering doing it. I know that it's a hard journey and I know it, you know it's a hard journey. So do you have any advice for people who want to write about their stories?
1: Um, start where it's interesting to you.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and start where it feels most passionate. So I I was talking to somebody and they said, well, you know, I'll start here and then the good part will happen in the middle. And I said, nope, start at the middle, start where it's interesting to you because it is incredibly hard. I've been working on this for nine and a half years and it has changed me to write this book and it's unglamorous. It's a lot of hours at the computer and and you have to know why you're doing it. You have to have the drive. And so starting with like the nugget or the juicy part of the story is gonna get you past that hurdle of like, oh, why would I possibly spend this many hours of my free time?
0: In yeah. like nine years, I think that floors a lot of people know, <laughs> <Being> like, <laughs> I've been working on the beginning of my book and workshops probably for about that long. You know, it, mainly because I start with accident and near death experience and I, you know, workshopped it with so many people who are not into near death experiences because I was like, well, how do I communicate with, you know, someone in the Marines or how do I communicate with someone who's not into this subject? Because you know, they, they do get, these near-death experiences do get housed in a certain section of a book story, you know, the inspirational section, and I think I came back to reach this world. I don't know if you have that kind of mission too, but I just, I want to reach the common person who's agnostic, the person who suffered trauma, you know, the whole spectrum of people who are just looking for healing or looking for answers, and I'm sure you have a similar vision
1: yeah, and when I, I did a survey in the beginning when I was in the early stages of my writing, and and I really, exactly what you're saying, I really want to include atheists, agnostics, people who don't have a spiritual practice, and that there's a fair amount of Christian writing, which is awesome, and I want to make sure that this speaks to non-Christians as well.
0: Yes, me too, the, the worldly kids of the world, but, but it's a fine balance to... Not offend people, and I just realized at some point I'm probably gonna offend someone. <laughs> That's just who I am. <laughs> so, but someone else will like it, and and however, I think you did a. I, I got to read a draft of Robin's book, and I think you did a really good job of walking that line of just really being in the moment and telling the story from this pure, pure place. That was very mm-hmm. lovely. So, I'd like to begin really with wherever you would like to begin. So you want to start, mirror kind of where you started with the book and start in childhood?
1: hmm Yeah, so I wrote it from a child perspective of just moment by moment what happened. And so it doesn't have interpretation in it. And so when I was eight years old, I was living in the U.S. on the East Coast, and I was uh, with parents who were neglectful and abusive. And that exposed me to a lot of pedophiles and a lot of other unsafe adults. And so one of those adults spotted me as a, you know, a child that I wasn't really uh, being protected and I cough for a second. (coughs) And he chose to abduct me and he took me out of the country and lots of people have questions on that part. Keep in mind, it's 1977. It's post-Vietnam war. There isn't anything about the um, security checks that we have now since um, 9-11 and what's interesting too that we just took uh, my son and they actually never asked for his ID just for, they asked for our passports but, the, and, but they never asked for his ID just for reference, even even today
0: Wow, did you stop them and tell them you know, like maybe they should <laughs> I
1: kind of, There was one guy who was very casual and so I joked around with them and so the guy said, looked at him and he said, do you know these people and, then my, and my son said yes you know? <laughs> It was kind of funny but I thought even today, it's not as, um, as secure as we would think. Yeah. Um, so as best as I can remember, he drugged me and he actually put me in a duffel bag. And so I don't think I ever went through, you know, I don't, I don't think I went through as um, person. I think I went through as his, his personal luggage that he carried with him. And, and since I was drugged, I can't know that for sure, but that's the best I can put together. Um, when I became conscious, I was in, a uh, in a small apartment and he was there and I kind of came to figure out when we went outside that it was a military base and he was in uniform and so he was very my life was in danger at every moment um, he did assault me and break my ribs um, it was actually a neighbor that saved him from basically killing me that way and I was hospitalized and um, no one stopped him from coming to, get me, coming to get me at the hospital. So he just walked in, you know, said he was my dad, and, and took me. And so he took me to a, a place where it was a market, and it was the first place I actually f- realized we were in Africa, because before, on the military base, I didn't actually see that many people of color. And in the market, it was mostly black. And that's the first time I realized we were in Africa. And so he actually abandoned me. At that point, he gave me over to another man.
0: And that must've been so disorienting. I mean, first realizing that you're in another country and then, you know, with these strangers who were not helpful, uh, who were harmful and frightening. Like, do you remember what, do you remember just glimpses? Has it helped you recover some of the memory through writing about it?
1: The writing has been incredible to really bring it back. And that my first draft of the writing wasn't very much, you know, volume or sequencing. It had a ton of gaps. And it's my husband, John, who has really, he interviewed me with open-ended questions. What were you wearing? What did you eat? You know, what did somebody, what did their voice sound like? You know, what was the landscape, paint the picture for me? So the writing has been incredibly healing for me and really bringing it back
0: yeah I feel like God works with us as we 're writing when we 're telling a story, like other people give us input, and that's almost like God working through us in the weirdest of ways, like okay, this needs to be revised, you know that things that you forget about someone two people have died, and then I had to revise their parts in the manuscript, and I realized you know just in death you know that uh, those little changes needed to be made, and so it's it's amazing i'm sure you found just like miraculous synchronicities along the way
1: right right and and the forgiveness I've been able to get to through the writing process yeah and part of the reason it's taken nine years is because the first you know four years there had to be so much recall so much bringing it from a suppressed place to a conscious place and then working through the emotion because we were out to dinner one time and somebody said oh you must be a good writer and my husband looked and said no her first drafts are horrible (laughs) had so much emotion about it and so the writing was very traumatized and convoluted and so that's why it's really taken this long to get it to be clear writing is because I had to heal and get clear in myself before I could even write it clearly
0: interesting so when you were in that market and you're lost in this foreign country with terrifying people what were your thoughts how did you feel
1: so when he Uh, gave me over to this other man and then just drove away it was incredibly mixed because on the one hand I just lost the worst most dangerous enemy to me in the world on the other hand he was the only one who knew where I came from and so I I had this you know at least a fantasy that he was going to be the one to get me back home and so with him abandoning me I thought how how am I ever going to get home now because I don't know the way and so what happened next is I went with the the new man, and he was black African. And we got on an old bus and went a ways and then the bus broke down and we were all instructed to get off and walk. But I had broken ribs, I hadn't been fed, and I couldn't keep up. And so he also abandoned me. And, And what it's important to understand is this is 1977 in Rhodesia, that's now Zimbabwe, and it's the height of the Rhodesian War. And there's three factions and one of them, the extremists are, one of their tactics is to kill white children so that the white farmers will leave and that they can have the land back. So for me to be abandoned out in this rural area is a matter of hours for my survival, which I didn't know at the time. So a middle party soldiers picked me up and took me to a village that I'm assuming they think would be receptive to a white child. And also it was closer to the border to South Africa. And so these people took me in. It was a rural village and they they took me in.
0: And I remember when I read your manuscript, how terrified you were to begin to trust someone, but how beautiful it was to see real love. And that's the part of the manuscript where I was just bawling, you know, like through that whole section where you're with these loving loving mothers and and fathers who dance with joy and connection to the earth. And it was, it was, it was amazing. So that part of the book is powerful.
1: Right. And, and what's so profound for me in that part is I came from not having mothering. I, I did not have, my mother wasn't capable of that. And, and so that now I know that there's many, uh, African cultures that it's normal for them to mother a child that's not their biological child. That sometimes they will take their sister's child into their home and then raise them as their own. That's normal in many African cultures. So what's exceptional is that they did that for a white child during a war where it was very dangerous for them to have me. And what I understand now that I've gone back is they could have been accused of abducting me, which would have been a very serious crime. So it was a very big risk for them to take me in. And and that they really brought me in with the singing and the the ceremony. And, And it really just filled me up. I was so hungry. I was so broken. I was just like a wounded animal. And to have one of the women sing to me and then hold me into her arms, I literally just collapsed in her arms and just let her be my shelter and let her be my new mother.
0: Yeah, that's such an amazing part, and I I also love the description of the dancing, and to me, I think, from what I've read and experienced, you know, just in Native American communities, there's a connection to the land that allows people to sing and dance and talk in a different way, and it sounds like you witnessed that type of connection.
1: And it really, even though I was only with them a relatively short time, it was, I was abducted in June, and I was back in the U.S. by some time in August. It gave me this value of honoring the land and connecting to the land because these were the first first place I got parenting, the first place I got belonging. So the imprint it made on me about being part of the land, living off the land, feeling the ancestors in the land is a huge shaping of who I am in the world.
0: Yeah, I can I can understand that. I um, like I said, only glimpses. But right after my near death experience, I heard a shaman speak, and I was just stunned. You know that I could feel the earth coming up through his words, and it was just this different way of speaking. And I thought, wow, it's so powerful. I mean, it's just it's so incredibly powerful. So mm-hmm. yes, I know know what you mean. Mm-hmm. So you had this short, beautiful time with the people in this village, and then. Then the near death, the first near death experience happened. So, would you describe? I mean, it's like trauma on top of trauma. But would you describe that that moment?
1: Mm-hmm. So I um, went to the creek and was playing by myself, and I looked up and there was a soldier, and he pulled out his rifle. And when the rifle became just a circle, then I knew I was done for, and. In my heart I was begging him because to me he looked just like the people who were taking such good care of me and I couldn't understand why they would love me and he would hate me. And I was begging him to see with his original eyes the ones that would see a child instead of the enemy or the you know, child of the enemy. So he pulled the trigger and the bullet grazed the top of my head and it blew me off my feet and I started to die of blood loss. And what happened when I first crossed over is that I was greeted by two Black women, and they were young, and they felt like my t- two big sisters, and that they were there to greet me and to take care of me, and they gestured to a really big uh, glowing orb, like a sphere, and I knew I could go into that, and I would be fully restored, and that the sphere would never be diminished, that it could heal me, and the thousand people and it would never dim down but I was so attached to that I had just finally found family and so I really wanted to stay with them so I didn't want to go into the fear and that confusion sent me backwards and away from these two sisters and into a, a dark um, stairwell that looked kind of like a rainy day in Ireland.
0: And do you think that these sisters were former ancestors, or just there in Africa, or did you have a or angels, or did you have a sense of who they were to you? I I only
1: just figured it out like a year ago, which is really funny, and and so it'll it'll require kind of foreshadowing of what happens next. <clears throat> um, so after I was shot, the soldiers came back and attacked the village. And um, I don't know if there's other survivors beyond me. There there may or there may not be. Um, But I think the two women who cared for me um, were part of the losses. Mm. And so that's a very interesting that they were not yet dead, but I believe that's who greeted me during my death experience. So that kind of takes time and has something spiritual with it that I can't quite explain. Mm-hmm. And so I was with them, and then I went through a dark cave where I really had to purify my self-blame about being abused, the part of me that thought something was wrong with me. That's why adults abused me. And my guide really helped me see that there was nothing wrong with me and that the abuse wasn't my fault we made it through that dark cave and I went to a field and there I met a being who he was uh, had a beard and a robe with um, kind of long sleeves that was kind of felted material wool or and he had a sheepherder staff and in his presence I felt no disturbance because I was still longing to get back to my African family and he when I was looking at trying to figure out who he was, his face changed to a lion. And then his face, and I thought, oh, I want to show this to Atto, who was one of the men in the village. And then his face changed to Atto, And so he was showing me, it's not the form that matters, it's the connection. And then he leaned his forehead to mine, and I could see as he sees, which is that we're all connected by these living minds like golden spider webs, and that in each of us, there's a gem, sparkling gem. So I saw this huge matrix of all these gems, these living lines of connection, and that we can strengthen those living lines with our focus and our love. Mm-hmm. And then he brought his sword back from mine, and my faith in him, my trust in him was so absolute that I just leaned my whole being into his. And we traveled and we came out above the scene where I was above the scene where I had died. And so the African mother woman was like a mother to me. She had found my body and she was stopping the blood flow and she was wailing. And I wanted her to know I'm okay. I'm loved. I'm taken care of. I'm totally guided. I'm not in pain and I'm just fine. And so I, I went further into the tunnel and there was more beings that purified me. And I knew that I was going home. And home felt to me like, my words for it are the great heart. And that that was the original place where I was sung into being, that I started as a sound sung by the great heart. And so I was going home to that place of origination, but I heard the song of my African mother and I was in the tunnel, and you know I could go one direction to the, to the great heart, but her song touched me, and she had called on the ancestors to join her in this calling song. And it was so pure that I stopped to listen. And when I listened, it awakened my memory that I hadn't done my purpose, which was to also be part of the medicine singers like she is, and that... I too was to sing people to help them remember themselves and that desire to live that purpose is what turned me around the tunnel and I turned away from you know going towards unification and total purity and came back and as I started coming back I thought I'm not sure I made the right choice I'm getting pain I'm getting body sensation and, and I'm remembering what's back there but I already made my choice so it was like a a river kind of moving me out and so I came back to my body and my African mother was like this great protector I felt so fragile and so they took care of me for many days and I was starting to recover and be able to get up a little bit
0: and And did you have any memory of the near-death experience right away or was it later that you remembered it um you know like As soon as you were beginning, your head was beginning to heal, did you have little glimpses of what you'd experienced?
1: Um, It's really the, so keep in mind I had a brain injury from that. Yeah. Um, And so my memories of those couple of days is pretty sparse. Like I remember, you know, them putting plants on me to heal the wound. And they also did singing prayer to get the hatred from the bullets off Hmm. my head so that I wouldn't go through life confused by that hatred. Interesting. Um, but other than that and being fed, the, those couple of days are a little bit blank for me. Um, and so what happened next is that the soldiers came back and attacked the village. And so one of the other mothers, I was in a hut with her, and when she thought everything was done, she grabbed me and started to run, and I was on her hip. And, they were, unfortunately, they were still there. And so the um, bullets came from the right side and hit her and I was on her left side, so I was protected. And so she went down and and I once I recovered from falling down with her, I thought, well, I have to drag her with me. and But she was yelling at me just to go. And she had never yelled at me before. And so I was totally torn, like I'm eight, I'm very weak. I'm not sure I can pull her. And she was yelling at me and giving me this command to go. So I followed her command. And I ran, and I could only make it so far. My blood pressure, of course, was so low. And so I almost made it to the trees near the Limpopo River before I collapsed.
0: And, and I want to go back just briefly. You said something so interesting in that first near-death experience that the divine could change forms. And that's something that a lot of people are curious about and I I just have this intuitive feeling that the divine meets us where we need to be met at that moment Mm -hmm. you know that what's going to give us what we need to move forward in our lives or to feel safe or to feel Mm -hmm. the learning that we need to feel in that moment that that's what we're met with is that that how you make sense of the changing faces
1: yes yes and and very much at being about purification so I could accept the greater and greater levels of love. Because obviously when I first crossed over, I was still defended and I still had so much self-blame and self-condemnation. And so they had to help me purify those so that I could even be ready to receive the magnitude of the love from the great heart.
0: And it's so interesting, the childhood near-death experiences, because they, you know, like the child's mind accepts this other world pretty quickly in in beautiful ways. But it also, I mean, these stories are generally a little more magical, I think, when I hear them from children. Like there's this quality, you know, like of just super creativity, because maybe children are met with that kind of fun and creativity of, you know, the changing faces and the different ways of feeling at home and that's that's an interesting part of that like Mm -hmm. i didn't go through a lot um, of my childhood i felt like a light was switched on like it was kind of instant it was like all that's left so all that abuse all that pain just gone and i saw i could just flip this switch and the switch was this love that just washed it all away like it it had and it and that taught me that it had nothing to do with me you know that it was really just the matter of a quick moment in the love of God that washed it away. So it's interesting that it sounds like the child that you were got deeper lessons and deeper healing of that in the moment. And maybe because you had, and this is stepping ahead, but you know, I mean, yeah, you had to go back home to those people. So maybe that's, um, you know, that sustained you, but Mm -hmm. So we're getting to the second near-death experience, which is fascinating to me. Um, so you fell at this point, and it appeared like you were dead, is that correct? Or?
1: Mm-hmm. Which, <clears throat> um, in now what I know, after I've gone back, and I found out more, a little bit more about what happened, ironically, that saved my life. Because one, it meant they didn't shoot me again. And two, and this is a very kind of painful thing about African horse, is that um, some of the people, even after they were dead, um, the soldiers had machetes. So for me to be dead, face down, bleeding again, saved me from that. So in that, looking at things as divine grace and is, you know, who knows the ways that we're being helped, even though it looks really awful at the moment. And... So I, so I crossed over and had an entirely different experience. It was a uh, white and blank, and there was just a little horizon line. And there was um, a song being sung to me on that horizon line. And it was literally like Sesame Street, where the, the words, you will live. And there was actually, even just like Sesame Street, a blue bouncing ball. And so keep in mind, I really have a brain injury now, and I really need the blue bouncing ball to help me track and so the song being sung to me, you will live, and so it's to the rhythm of Three Blind Mice. Hmm. And that was a very positive memory for me, because one time when I was sick, kind of the most loving thing my brother ever did to me was sit down when I was really sick and read me the whole set of Three Blind Mice. So whoever was speaking to me knew that that would increase my trust of them, because that was a very positive association for me. And so after it took me quite a while to realize that it was a message to me, you will live. And, and then I got curious, who's speaking to me? And so when I was able to see through the veil, what I, what I saw was a, a man and he was, um, his skin tone was kind of a very blue, purple blue, it was very beautiful. And I didn't really think it odd or anything. Um, and he was jeweled, and he had um, black hair that was up in a bun on the top of his head. And so he kind of was feminine and masculine at the same time, but really intensely powerful. And it wasn't soft and loving like the experience I had with the man in the field, where I just felt completely embraced. It was intense, and I felt like he had the power to make a mountain with his hand and destroy the mountain two seconds so later with his hand, and that I knew. He was telling me I was going to live because he chose it as part of a greater cycle and that if he wanted it, that I was destroyed and made into a new form, that would be also. But he was choosing for me to live because there was some reason that that was going to help in the, some big cycle that I couldn't possibly understand. And his message to me is destruction makes available the ingredients for new creation. That we must break this apart, just like a mountain is made and then it comes down with erosion to make the beach, and you can't have the beach without the mountain being worn down. And so when I, when I came back out of that experience, he was still with me and he commanded me to move forward. Because I just wanted to give up, I had just lost everyone I loved. I felt absolutely horrible, I saw no way I was going to make it. because I lost the people who took care of me, and he commanded me to move forward to the nearest well. Literally, I crawled for the whole rest of the evening until it was dark towards this well because he commanded me to move every inch forward. And the next day I was found by a woman from another village and she washed me off and muddled me up and took me back to her homestead. And when people saw that she had a wounded white child, they said, don't bother with her, it's too dangerous and she said she's a living human being i'm not going to throw her away
0: i want to stop and go back to that second near-death experience just one quick question the that seems very tied to nature too. that idea of creation and destruction and i wonder if in retrospect you have more that you've i'm sure you have like meditated on that moment and why you think you needed that at that moment. I mean, obviously to just make it, you know, to survive, you needed a certain strength, but uh, I'd be curious like what your thoughts are about that, that moment.
1: So in, in hindsight, in the perspective I have now and the research I've done now, I wonder, was that Shiva? And when people have the idea of that people's near-death experiences are influenced by their beliefs, On the one hand, I get that, and I understand that I wasn't raised Christian, and I certainly wasn't exposed to anything Hindu. And so, you know, by my perspective now, that man in the field was Jesus, and then I meet Shiva. How did that happen? You know, East Coast white girl in Africa. It wasn't in India. I was in Africa.
0: I know, you know, they... Of course, Christians have moved to Africa, and of course, many Indians moved to South Africa and even were, you know, in many different ways. So I wonder if just the the people who had passed on, you know, the ancestors, or there was some little thread of connection just because you were in Africa, that maybe that's why um, Shiva was there or why Jesus was there for you. You know, it's, it's interesting if it's tied to the history of the land.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, is it? Is it my past lives, my karma? Is it already in the land? Those are good questions.
0: Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. So she kept you, the woman who found you, she kept you anyway.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so she kept me hidden. And I've since found out um, because I have contacted um, one of the, her granddaughter. So her name is Mir Lucy and her granddaughter's name is Mayamu. And so I found out from Mayamu that they actually put shoe polish on me to help hide me. And so, of course, they dressed me as them, and they put shoe polish to make it so I was safer, and so it was safer for them also. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so she uh, was making arrangements um, for two things. One, she had one of the medicine singers from the land come help heal me since I was still recovering, and I had a lot of blindness in my right eye. I had a lot of um, functional, like structural, functional body problems from having been shot, and I think the second year death, I, c- I really couldn't see very well at all. Um, and that occasionally comes back, but I can't really see out of my right eye that well. And so she was making arrangements also to find somebody who could speak to the white farmers across the river in South Africa, who spoke Afrikaans and make arrangements. We found this white child, you know, can we give her over to you so you can get her back to wherever she came from. Um, so they took me across the Limpopo River and gave me to those white farmers. And and what's interesting there is that it was such a cultural change that I went from being touched all the time and being sung to and eating together out of the same bowl and being sleeping right up against other children. And it was just, I was so taken in. And so the shift to white Afrikaans culture, South African culture, was really quite painful for me and that they were very... Um, you know, strong work ethic, they were there to do their farming, you didn't get any touch. You know, I got fed well, there was running water, there was, you know, a more comfortable bed, but I, I wasn't getting love. And I felt very much in the way.
0: Oh, and after a near death experience, that's what a lot of people talk about is how they're so sensitive to love. And that was, you know, one of the messages that I heard is love is all that matters. And it really is all that matters. And so, you know, that's a beautiful description of how you were missing love and it didn't matter the quality of the bed, you know, the energy, the quality of, of lacking in love is painful. I think to us, it's even all the more painful after being that close to a loving God and that close to that connection. So you didn't have the language as a kid to realize that, but I'm sure in retrospect, you're like, of course I felt, you know, the, the disconnect.
1: Right. Yeah. Thanks for articulating. I hadn't, I hadn't framed it that way for myself before. And and then also they didn't gesture as much when they spoke. So I couldn't understand Venda and I couldn't understand Afrikaans, but Venda I could understand more because they gestured when they spoke. And they were animated with their hands and their face. And so I could gather a whole lot more. But
0: in that cool. <laughs> you just yeah. me, I use my hands all the time. And I was like, right. okay, I've got a reason to <laughs> to be proud of that. <laughs> Thanks. Right.
1: Right. Yeah, so I understood. What was going on less, even though I was back with white people? Wow. And so I, I think at that point, the stress in my body, I just really couldn't keep going. And so I had what I now understand as parasympathetic shock, which is um, we go so dormant, you know, like the, we have the arousal state, which is the flight or fright. And then when we've had that extreme of trauma, we can go into what's called parasympathetic shock and go into no heart rate and no breath. Um, so they hospitalized me because. They found me, you know, unresponsive. And, and I have actually crawled behind the refrigerator because at least I felt held and there was a vibration from the motor Hmm. and I, and I wanted something feeling like it was living, touching me. And so that's, I think where they found me and then they hospitalized me. And then that was worse because this is South Africa. I'm in a whites only hospital. And I can't possibly speak to the love I just received from, from rural Black people. And they're telling me, like, oh, it was so awful for you, and now you're back with white people and it's better. And that wasn't my experience at all. Um, and so from there, um, I kind of intimidated me into telling them where I was from. And um, I was sent back, uh, like a man escorted me on a plane back to the U.S. I was back with my family, who... Um,
0: and before we go back there, I do want to get a little bit into your trip. So, did you see that hospital? Did you go to South Africa too? And so, you traveled both to where the village was. And what was your impression now as an adult, like looking at the, the differences? Mm-hmm. Was it the same?
1: Um, it was I, like when we went, because we did a very turn trip last year, actually, that year to this month. Um, and so just to kind of give context for that, so, so I was back with my family and there was like a culture of just don't talk about this, this never happened. We don't talk about it it never existed. So I could never discuss any of it, being abducted or what happened in Africa. And so that's what I, I just repressed it all. And then that's, I had to survive a lot more years of abuse until I got out at 19 and never went home again. Um, and so you know, then flash forward 40 years later, I have John's loving support. People have fun crowdfund you have to mean this crowdfunders so I can go on this trip. And I didn't really know what I was gonna find. We did make a connection with Mayamu, the granddaughter of Mir Lucy, and I had like a three-minute video that of her describing my head wound. And so we knew it was really her. And so I went back and I found everything. We found wow. I did not expect to find the first hospital. We had no idea where that was, but that was in Bulawayo. And we found the land where the village was. We found Mayamu. The reunion of that changed my life. Literally, it was, you know, running towards each other and hugging. And, you know, I can't remember Venda, and she doesn't speak much English. So it was just this total, uh, complete union. And if people want to see that, there's um, I have my video where there's the clip of that at the end of mine.
0: My- and how, how did it change you? I mean, just is it that affirmation that you long for or that connection with that love that you spent time in the book writing about and then there's like no link? Was it that?
1: So it brought back that link. It, it completely blew away any self-doubt of like, maybe I'm remembering this wrong. And she's so loving. I mean, she almost picked me up off the ground. She's this strong, loving woman. And then she bent me forward and she checked the exact spot of what you see in my head wound. And the validation and the affirmation couldn't have come from anybody else. And it just completely healed, you know, what had happened in my family when I came back of like, you know, you're lying. None of this is true. And
0: (sighs) that's so hard. I, I mean, you had this story to tell and you didn't get to tell it. I mean, that's, you know, that really is, that's a tough one.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when she fully embraced me, like there was a little thought in my head that just went through, like my family was so wrong like, and they miss out on knowing this love and it's their loss and i've i've tried with my one family member that has some potential and she won't hear it and you know i even told her i was going i even told her when i came back from africa she's not interested
0: mm-hmm. so and you know in, in, in moments like that it's like the people that you lose yeah, you've lost them, but God, you're gaining so many people who are interested oh. in your story and just, you know, cry and can't get enough of it. So it's it's really amazing. It's like, you know, the the payoff is this, you know, huge audience that really right. you know believes in you and and is healed by hearing your story because I think you're an inspiration that if you can suffer that level of trauma and get through it, then everyone who is suffering trauma and wondering about healing, I mean, you're this guiding star, this light for a lot of people.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and, and what I want to say about that too is that healing is messy. It takes time. I spent my whole 20s and 30s doing trauma recovery work, and it's totally worth it. And that step by step, I could sense and feel my body again, which, you know, increases your capacity for joy. And then if you're suppressing the pain, you're also putting a lid on the joy. And that to go ahead and deal with the pain, to walk through it and metabolize it and make meaning of it, makes it so I can feel love, I can feel joy, I can feel freedom, I can move. I was very rigid and stiff before I did my trauma recovery work. And step by step, my body got more freedom and options in my mind and my being. I choose so differently now than I did when I was 20.
0: That's the part that I think a lot of people freak out about is walking through the pain. You know, they kind of think, no, I've been through too much. I I can't actually do that. You know, like that's where they get tripped up. And did you ever have moments like that where you thought there's, it's impossible to walk through it?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. And, and for as much healing as I did on the trauma from my family and in my neighborhood, there was a part of me that when I started writing this book, I thought, well, but the war stuff I'll never heal from. Like that's just, that's just done. That's just a mark in me that I can never recover from. And and that's how I started writing the book with that idea. And some of the really key things that have been transformative for me are doing the art. And um, I really am a big advocate of EMDR therapy, the rapid eye movement therapy. And because I'm so visionary, That's just a perfect match for my brain, and it's so much faster for me than talk therapy, and and talk day too. And that body, I agree. I totally agree. Essential. You can't. I had an herbalist teacher say to me that trauma is not in the event; it's in your nervous system.
0: Yeah, and I don't even. I don't even know if I could point to one thing because I tried so many things in trauma recovery. I mean, you know, from You know, the first part was just anger and self-defense, but then it was, of course, energy work and psychotherapy and uh, just a number of things, body work and releasing different things in different ways and, you know, working with shamans where, I mean, with so many different people, like, you know, when the, I list everything that I've done, it's like, wow, it's a little overwhelming. It's a long list. Yeah. And I was like, well, where do I point? I think it became cumulative at some point, you know, yeah. that this loving attention to myself over time, eventually something snapped and I was like, oh yeah, I'm really a lot freer and oh, I'm walking through pain really quickly now. Did you, do you feel like it was cumulative for you too? Or?
1: Exactly. And in the beginning, It was like thankless work you know i'd go to therapy be so brave work on some terrible trauma and the next day i'd feel horrid because my body would be dumping all the toxicity and my skin would break out and it was like is this my prize (laughs) this (laughs) is this and so i can see why a lot of people think oh i'll stop there and just what i want to say is keep going because in the beginning it is terrible like all you get is just opening up pandora's box and then stay with it, stay with it. And, and having support and having others who are also walking it, it was really key for me. If I couldn't call up another abuse survivor and say, is, is your day totally sucked too? Oh, yes, mine too. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> yes. And there's even yes. online groups that are great now too, like Lisa Romano for narcissistic parents. so many different groups that people can connect right. with others.
1: Right. And and having that validation from others and seeing their progress gave me hope into my progress.
0: Oh, yes.
1: If other people have breakthroughs in the group, then it gave me faith that I could have a breakthrough.
0: And energetically, I think we help one another too. That's what I've realized like working with energy workers and being around them, you know, like that accelerates healing just sharing these stories with each other and I think even, you know, maybe even possibly making videos like this, you know, someone gets that little piece of healings possible for me, you know, and I I know as a teacher and a professor, I always tried to extend my hand back, you know, to people who are suffering and go, just take that first step, you know, just walk into a recovery center or to a counselor's office or to something, you know, that was needed for that person, so.
1: Right, and and that's what I really, you know, it's like, I, I get invited to go speak at these places, and it's such an honor, and it's so healing for me. And I did um, Jeff Olson's event with uh, Human Triumph. And, you know, people are thanking me for coming and speaking. I got to stand up from, you know, in front of 100 and something people and share my story and be witnessed and validated by such a loving, you know, grounded, heartfelt group. Like, how lucky am I? And that the healing is so mutual. And I, I want to tell you this piece, one of the Women who came up and spoke to me afterwards, she was also an abduction survivor. Mm. And and it's pulling me away, just survivor guilt. And for those who don't know what that is, it's if you made it out or you survived and other people didn't, it can do this crazy warp in your head to feel like you shouldn't have survived, or you know, it happens to like in, you know, tornadoes or earthquakes or whatever. It's like, how come I stayed on the side that didn't break open and that person's gone? And then It's just really a very big process to heal that survivor guilt. And so she came up to me and she said, well, I was abducted, but I've always felt bad because people like you didn't get to escape. And for me, the FBI came in and broke up the whole child abduction and pornography ring before anything happened to her. And I thought, you feel bad about that? That's a lot of trauma. And so she told this to me and then she was going to just kind of run away. And I, and I took her hands and I said, just stay with me. And I could feel that like pain of her survival guilt. And I, and I just kept like pulling her closer and I said, just stay with me. And, and because I'm an empath and because I can sense energy, I could feel she was working on flipping this over. And she did it. And I could feel this peace happen in her heart of getting rid of that distorted thinking that she should actually feel guilty for surviving that. And, and the healing that happened for both of us in that moment was profound because it made all my work worthwhile. Because you know, honestly, there probably aren't that many abduction survivors who can get up and speak in front of a group about their experience. I'm sure there are others, but I personally, I haven't met them yet. And so for me to be that for her helped to helped, like, validate my power in terms of my healing. And then, you know, and it was just this unbelievable bonding moment between the two of us. And I thought, how lucky am I that I get to travel to Sedona
0: and do this? Yeah, you know, and as you're saying that, I'm going to loop back to something that that really hit me. Yeah, a lot of trauma survivors and abduction survivors, they get some media now, you know, like if they've been held captive for a time and then they're just thrown into the media and you see them kind of recoil at times, I saw the movie Room. And even though it's fiction, you know, this, the way it is described afterwards, when she's interviewed, you know, the questions were just so cruel, and they just came at her in these awful ways. And I think she did it because, you know, she wasn't able to work. And maybe she needed that money, you know, from the media attention. And it was just, you just, I mean, it's just heartbreaking, you know, to, to think of how we treat trauma survivors and how we treat abduction victims, you know, it's all just in some ways, you know, you didn't get that media attention, which might have been a good thing, even though you returned to this, this family, like that, that might have been, that might have shut down your story. You know, who knows what, what mm-hmm. would have happened if there would have been a lot of, do you, was there any, or did your, your parents like shut it down completely?
1: Completely. Pretend nothing happened. Wow. Nothing happened. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So
0: interesting. So.
1: And one of the, healing. Make a point with that too, that the more I've done my healing work, the more I'm in my power, I get really good response. And, and like I just had a very well-known journalist contact me, and we're having a lovely conversation. you know and it's like he's super interested in your death experiences and how can your death experiences help people to be less materialistic? Yes. And so because I've done my healing work, because I'm in my body, I'm really not. I'm really not experiencing. I mean I had, you know, with my video I had a couple strange responses but I'm mostly getting support.
0: Yeah, and that's just YouTube. There's there's weirdos out there, trust me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, the to be in that place and to be able to tell one story, there is healing in that and connection with others. And that's a very powerful, powerful experience. And I think only more so you'll be in the minds of people. And I really do feel, and this is just me, but I feel that your story came into existence. And this is going to sound strange before you wrote it, you know, it happened when it happened to you and it was meant to be this book. And maybe your second near death experience was alluding to that, that, you know, this is the piece that really the world kind of needs. Like we need so much discussion around war and racism and religion and just healing from trauma, no matter what the trauma is. Like this discussion is so necessary. Whatever piece people want to take from it, it's an important message. and so right.
1: right, and that's what I've really been getting from the from the feedback I've been getting and And like we were saying earlier you know, it can go so many directions. It can be about the near death or it can be about war reconciliation, race reconciliation. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, Ishmael Beal. He wrote A Long Way Gone and he was um, in Sierra Leone and he was forced into being a child soldier. And just, just my dream is like, what if he and I can be on the stage together? And, you know, a child soldier now grown up and recovered and me who was shot by a soldier who was young and, you know, I don't know his life story, but who knows what he was forced into or where he came from, his background. But like, imagine that.
0: That sounds like a Ted talk video. (laughs) (laughs) That would be amazing. Yes. And there's a piece I want to come back to about being an empath. Were you always an empath? Like, do you think from birth, you know, do you think that maybe the abusive family made you extra sensitive to, what people were doing and feeling, or do you think it's developed more so over time? Um, that's a
1: great question. So I, my perception is that as soon as I was born, I was like, mm-mm, <laughs> like, sorry, made a mistake. Let me hit the exit door. And so um, I feel that, that maybe my mom had a twin that died early on, and so her spirit stayed with me to accompany me through the uterine experience, through the womb experience. And so when she said, okay, you know, now my job is done, I'm leaving. I said, I'm coming with you. So, you know, kind of right off, I wasn't back, you know, I knew where the exit door was. And so whether that developed me as an empath, I'm not sure. Um, I definitely um, was very practiced at reading adults to figure out what kind of crazy they were, what were they really capable of and how was I going to play act to be what they needed me to be. Like what kind of actress was I now with this crazy person or that crazy person and I needed to switch back and forth between the two of them in the same room so I could survive. And so initially I was always looking for like the pathology in people and the, you know, the psychosis in people. And, and was there any humanity left that I could appeal to? Was there some vulnerability I could find that I could relate to them so that my survival
0: would increase? And you didn't find that in your abductor, did you? You didn't find that moment of humanity.
1: That was what was so scary about him is that for all the other pedophile adults I was exposed to, I could always find you know, their wounded child somewhere. With him, um, my belief is that he was a Vietnam vet. I don't know what happened to him. I know my sense is that he had severe abuse before that. And that going into being a soldier when you already have childhood PTSD, is makes people much more vulnerable to what they're like when they come out. You know, people who go into it with a solid family experience, or knowing who they are, um, they have more chance to be able to reconcile their PTSD when they come out, rather than having it be stacked up with uh, layers of trauma.
0: And it's just amazing to me that you started this recovery when now PTSD is something that we talk about constantly, you know, like, not just necessarily with um, soldiers, but for people who are abuse survivors. But really, that wasn't in the language in the 90s as much, you know, it was, it took a while for people to catch on. And for me to even realize that I had PTSD from childhood and a rape, you know, like those two things just, and it was compounding, you know, that, you know, that certain things just become so comprehensive and it also hits later too. So you can feel fine for a while. And then suddenly like I developed a phobia in cars. Like I was, of course, very afraid at first, then I went through a time period where I was okay. And then it just came back. And that's the weird thing about PTSD is, you know, there's not, it's not linear.
1: Right. Right. And that people can can do their high functioning, and then if they have kindness or they have a supportive relationship, sometimes that's when it comes up. Yeah. Where they have some security that says you can now go ahead and fall apart a little bit. And um, and I and I just want to go back to your um, empath question. Um, so I think I was beforehand, and then I had the near those near death experiences. Yeah you know, that way up to my empath abilities. Um, I did have some more as a teenage that was basically more the um, parasympathetic shock. Um, those weren't as significant. Um, so I just think I had all these things to open me, and open me and open me. And so now, you know, and I think what's so interesting about being empath is that means something different to a lot of people. And for me, it's really about people's health and their body and their emotional story in their body. And so that's the healing work I do with people is I can really cut to the chase of like what's underlying cause for their health issues or their emotional distress and really work with it at that very core level. And it's very gratifying work because it's can sometimes touch things for people they haven't been able to get to other ways.
0: Like I feel everybody has that capacity, but they don't know that they have it. And it's, it's weird. Like, like you can watch two people. There's a, a, talk video that's very interesting about how to spot a liar and one mother killed her kids point blank and she's talking about it and then the other mother is just crying and addressing her daughter's killer in the um, courtroom and you can feel that there's just nothing there's just coldness in the first woman and it just like hits you at the gut and then there's just this pain and trauma and sadness and you feel her emotions the second mother and I'm like that's I mean, that's what being an impact is, is being able to pick up on the emotional bodies of other people. It's like, not the words, it's not the intellect, but it's like, Hey, what's coming out of their heart and their gut and their body, you know, just like it, it hits some of us really hard. I think that, that, um, reading, I guess, of people on that level.
1: And, and what's really interesting about that. My, my husband, John has really studied the Um, personality and people from a Myers-Briggs point of view, and that there really are people who are very sensory oriented, very tangible, very, you know, those people tend to be more mechanical. they can solve a mechanical problem, you know, days before I could even understand it. And so there is really a spectrum of people who are sensory to feeling and intuitive. And so I've come to really respect that, of course, they have some aspect of intuition, but it may be not their first way of perceiving the world. Whereas for me, intuition is the very top way I perceive the world. And so I can do intuition all day long and not get exhausted. Whereas to do something kind of this more tasky thing over here would tucker me out. So it's the same thing for the people over here. For them to even conceive that I even have this much intuition is is really hard for them. Yeah. It's not their daily experience.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because that is true. People are different, even artists and even healers. And, you know, no matter who you are, that we are different within that realm. But yeah, I, my highest one is the N as well as the intuitive and, of course I'm an ENFP, so that perceiver part, man, that just makes me a wild thing. <laughs> you know, like I'm intuiting things and I'm I'm perceiving things and I'm just walking around like constantly, you know, stimuli, stimuli, stimuli. And it, you know, well, I think Walt Whitman, if I just had to guess, had to be that, that type because he wasn't a very good uh worker. You know, he just wandered through life like, you know, looking at the trees, <laughs> looking at the flowers, and so certainly that intuitive piece is interesting, but it's what it's paired with too at Myers-Briggs that, um, that adds a lot. I had, I think it was a dream therapist tell me to look at your weakness and really honor your weakness in the Myers-Briggs. And my weakness is menial tasks. So yeah, if I have to do like HR training, I feel like dying. Like I get sweaty palms, my head hurts. Like, I'm like, I do not look at a tree.
1: <laughs> and, so, and, and I want to make a really good point with this. So, um, so near-death experiences happen to the full spectrum of like all the 16 types for Myers-Briggs. So from, from my type, which is already in, born intuitive, for me to have this visionary experience, it just added on to what I'm already good at. You flip that chart and you have somebody whose entire sensory, they're oriented towards, um, I get my answers from the past and from precedent. And you know, there's only the material world, and they have a near-death experience. It's their worst nightmare. <laughs> it's, it's their bottom of their stack. Their weakest areas is completely blown open. So for somebody who is that that type, their integration of their near-death experience looks entirely different than somebody like me, who it's like do 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 do. One more vision, great, you know. Interesting. So I just yeah. really want to honor that when I. When John and I sat down and we looked at that, we actually designed a workshop for it to help people honor. Like, if intuition is fifth in your stack of the eight functions, it's going to be harder for you to integrate than if it was for me first, or for somebody who's using third, yeah. and for somebody who's eighth in their stack. Oh my God, they have to deny their experience, and because they, it doesn't work in their world, doesn't work in their paradigm.
0: Well, there are the like I read um dr um Party's book about him he he sounded very materialistic, you know, like incredibly materialistic, and everything switched, you know, and he downsized his home and you know the book is about that um that big switch, but I'm meeting more and more people who want to do career counseling with near death experiencers, and that little piece that you're mentioning seems like an important piece because yeah, you come back from this profound experience and not everyone's given a direct mission like I was, you know, like they just come back and they have to figure out what to do with their lives. And that's so hard, you know, when, when everything has flipped and I'm sure it's harder for someone who isn't naturally intuitive, like, like you're saying like that, how do they figure it out? So that's, that's an interesting part. What's, right. what's your workshop going into?
1: Um, well, I proposed it for the INS conference, but it, it wasn't the one that got accepted. So oh, I think no. John, again, you know, I should make a video on that with him.
0: Yeah. having
1: that conversation. That's a great idea. Thanks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, cool. So, but it's helping people to de- determine how to integrate their near-death experience right. based on yeah. their personality type.
1: Because John's super good. He can like get somebody's type in like four minutes. Um, and then, so to help them honor like again, like if it's sixth, seventh, or eighth in your stack, like you come back and your integration of your near-death experience is going to be, you know, like Nancy Ryans. She was an atheist, and she had to work on integrating her profound spiritual experience with her guide into that framework. And then everybody, you know, thought of her. She had a science job. So her integration is a whole different ballpark than somebody who's you know, it was already like a Reiki master or something right. like
0: that. Right. And, and now you're making me think like why it was so important to me right after surgery. I begged for a pencil and some paper because I was a poet and I was like, it was all about the angels. You know, I just started writing a poem about them. And I thought people may not accept this as reality, but you can get away with anything in a, in a poem. <laughs> and, and, so, <laughs> and so, you know, that, that was like my first, I mean, like still ICR, you know, like bruises on my hands and I'm shaking but I'm like I knew I had to commit it to uh, to paper you know because that was where my intuition and my creativity and my right-brained things happen so did you journal when you were a kid did you keep a secret journal or do anything to hang on to I had no safe place no privacy so well I didn't write anything
1: down well yeah hmm. everything was invaded I think I did have a tiny journal for a while and my sister found it and announced it at the dinner table, all the contents. So I just didn't do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. And I switched to poetry because my mom read my journal <laughs> at a young age and you know, then was very angry at me for the things that I remember thinking, Wow, you thought I was gonna like you, (laughs) like oh, you're such great parents, (laughs) love you so much. (laughs) You know, no, but that's really sad when privacy is invaded. Yeah. Yeah. So, to sum all this up, was there anything that you think we left out in the telling of your story? Like, what do you think is one of the key pieces that you want people to take away from your story?
1: Um, Well, I just want to go back to that list of ways of healing and yeah. that um, you and I have had this conversation about, before about, about what we eat and what we put our, in our body. And so if we're eating a lot of inflammatory food, a lot of foods that we're allergic to, we're just not going to have a very clear mind. And it's going to make the body and the mind and this healing way slower, if really possible.
0: Yeah, and we live in such a polluted world.
1: Yeah, and eating a clean diet, going ahead and spending a little more for organic, really prioritizing yourself. Like we wouldn't put the wrong thing in our gas tank in our car and expect the car to run well. So why do we put the wrong thing in our body and expect it to do fine? So, so you know, drinking clean water, eating clean foods, really prioritizing getting good nutrients, high density nutrient food. And, and what diet works for each person is so individual, but really getting away from the inflammatory foods like the fast food and the oils that have been heated a bunch of times with fast food. And getting back to whole food is really, it's really quite simple. Just getting back to whole food, getting back to actually putting time into food preparation. Because it's, it's such a great self-love. It's such a great self-love. It and-
0: is, it is. And I, I tell that, message to my students, you know, I just beg them to add more organic fruits and vegetables and raw if possible to their diet, no matter what they're doing, no matter what their income level is, like if they can just add more of that as snacks and meals here and there, then they're beginning that process of adding more health into their lives. But, you know, some people grow up in poverty that I teach and all they know is fast food and food banks. And, you know, like it, it's a big switch for some people. I got into a big vegan conversation um, based on my last video and and with someone. and And, you know, there's so much to the whole discussion of food that, you know, it depends on the person's disorder, their illness, where they are in life, where they are financially, you know, like so many things have to be taken into consideration, but I always think that the basics is exactly what you're saying, you know, stay away from process, pick an apple over a bag of chips, you know, pick, you know, making your own food versus fast food, you know, always pick something that's healthier. Mm -hmm.
1: Yep. And it's an investment in yourself and it does take time and, and more focus.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and it it's a privilege, I think, to eat this way, too. Like, I'm reminded of it because I will pay $9, $15 for a salad bar. And I know my students at the same cafeteria can't pay that. You know, they just can't. So they're going to eat the dollar taco or the, you know, whatever is available. And so I think that's, you know, a big push is to have more fresh food available in, in areas, especially like Texas, <laughs> where it's not as as prevalent, it's important for people. Mm-hmm. In their
1: yeah, and and uh just kind of adding to that, if what I had worked on something in therapy for years. It was actually a survivor guilt piece, and I worked on it and worked on it and did EMDR and did all kinds of things. And the thing that shifted it was when I was doing a month long cleanse and I was juicing every day, mm. and I was walking in the woods, and all of a sudden, boom! It just shifted. Yes. So I just say, food is medicine. Yes. Can be extremely powerful for people's healing.
0: Those cleanses are amazing. They can be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I so
1: enjoy talking with you. Yeah,
0: me too. It's been beautiful. And I'm cheering you on and can't wait until I see that book with all the lovely art on the shelves. Is there, do you know a date yet or is that still in the works?
1: I'm hoping to turn it back in to publishers um, in the middle of next month and
0: then we'll see where I get a contract. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you. so. I will see
1: you at Ions in
0: Bellevue. Yes, yes. I'm excited to be there. So it should be lovely. Those national conferences are amazing. Yeah. All All right. right. All right. Well, good luck to you with all that you're doing and I'll see you soon. And thank you for watching and please like this video and subscribe and find Robin's channel and some of her other videos and the links below. But may you be blessed.